Good morning. Ohayo gozaimasu. As the kids make their way out with the rest of you, please make your way to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Okay, chapter 13. This morning, we're going to be covering the details of what took place one particular Sabbath as Jesus was traveling in and through the region of Perea, a region that was located on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, you know, biblically speaking, this place is most often simply referred to as the place beyond the Jordan or the place beyond the river. Uh, I do have a map for you guys. There you go. Um, uh, back in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, we read of how Jesus was going to leave his base of operations in Galilee, make his way toward Jerusalem. He began by going to uh, a village of the Samaritans, but he was not received by them, if you recall. Uh, they decided to venture towards Jerusalem by circumventing Samaria. Now, in order to circumvent uh, entering into Samaritan territory, most Jews traveling from Galilee would take a path that skirted along the Jordan River, heading south, and then eventually cross over the river into the region known as uh, Perea. Now, on the map there, if you could see it, I'm sure the Medinas can see it because it's close, but, you know, Josh, not so sure if you can see it back there. But um, the green side of the trail is on the east side of the Jordan River. That's the region of Perea. And and this is kind of where really from Luke chapter, uh, the end of chapter 9, chapter 10, all the way to about chapter 18 seems to happen all in this area, okay? Um, Jesus is slowly making his way toward Jerusalem, but he's stopping along the way. Several cities, towns, villages uh, doing ministry. Now, Perea was controlled by the Roman Empire, but it does have roots as part of the land that was given to the 12 tribes of Israel. If you recall, there were three tribes uh, that took their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. It was the tribe of Reuben, uh, the tribe of Gad, and then half the tribe of Manasseh uh, established themselves in this same area. And so there were definitely Jewish communities and settlements in this area. It was primarily occupied by Jews, but it was ruled over by Herod Antipas. And this will play in as part of our study as we continue to make our way to chapter 13. Uh, The Jews regarded Perea as having equal status as Judea and Galilee, uh, as it was the region that was used to connect these two Jewish regions, Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, with Perea in the middle. Uh, Perea was the region where much of John the Baptist's ministry took place. It was probably the location of Jesus' baptism. Uh, John the Baptist was baptizing in the area uh, when Jesus approached him, according to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 28. Jesus is said to have been baptized in Bethabara, or Bethany, beyond the Jordan. That means on the east side of the Jordan River. So this is a very prominent place amongst the Jewish people. So in our account today, we're going to read of an event that took place on a Sabbath while Jesus attended worship services at a local synagogue in that region. Our text is going to be Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. And the title of our study this morning is going to be Straightening Out Matters. Okay, Straightening Out Matters. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and His holy word? I'm going to read through our text in its entirety, verses 10 through 17. Do your best to follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. Luke, the beloved physician and author of this gospel, he shares with us the following details of what took place on that particular Sabbath. Verse 10 says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, 
you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity that we have to open up your word, to allow your word to to speak to us, to mold us, to shape us uh, more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, as we've opened our Bibles, Lord, that our hearts, our minds, our ears uh, would be open as well to all that your spirit desires to show us, to teach us, to lead us in. And so, Lord, uh, we give you this time, we give you this service And uh, we ask that you'd be glorified, that you would be honored uh, in this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our text this morning, it details the events that took place uh, one Sabbath morning as Jesus taught in a local synagogue. Now, the fact that Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues might be a little bit surprising, but not altogether shocking. Jesus was recognized as a traveling teacher of the law. He was referred to by many of his followers as a rabbi, a teacher. And it was very common for traveling rabbis to come in and and guest speak or guest teach uh, within a local synagogue. So Jesus did have quite a large following. Uh, Multitudes would gather around him wherever he went. And it may have been seen as a great plus to have such a person come through and, and teach at your synagogue. And so we can understand his presence here Uh, The thing that does make it a little peculiar is that the hatred and the animosity that he had built up over the last few years amongst the religious leaders was growing to an all-time high and beginning to cause some problems. The religious elite were becoming more and more leery of having anything to do with Jesus. They were distancing themselves from him and giving him platforms to minister to the people could be looked down upon by the religious leaders in charge. Most of the time where Jesus is given any sort of platform amongst the people from this time forward is only given to him as a means to try and trap him, as a way to try and bring an accusation against him. Uh, And so it would seem like here in Perea may have been one of the last pure, just, hey, come and share at this. They don't have a trap set up for him here. Uh, Some ill intentions. He comes, he shares. It seemed... Like it would just be another typical Sabbath service, a visiting rabbi coming to teach and expound upon the scriptures, but nothing about this day would be normal for those that were in attendance. Jesus was going to do something radical, something miraculous, life-changing in front of all who were in attendance that day. Well, along with Jesus, we are told that there was a woman in attendance there in the synagogue. Now, We are not told specifically, but it would seem that this woman was someone from this area, perhaps even a regular attender of this particular synagogue. That would be a normal practice, you know, for most of us. You know, we have a local church that we uh, 
go to on a regular basis, time and time again. The same thing for the local Jewish communities. They would go to their local synagogues. This lady evidently lived in this area. She came to this synagogue. We're told of this woman that she had a spirit of infirmity, which means she had an illness or an impairment that was the result of some sort of spiritual demonic influence upon her life. Now, the wording is different in the Greek from demonic possession that's used in other portions of Scripture. And so some have tried to speculate that perhaps this particular woman was suffering from demonic oppression, but not demonic possession. And some of you might be wondering, well, what's the difference? Um, Basically, demonic possession involves a person's body becoming a residence for demonic spirits to come in to take complete control over the mind and or body of an individual. Whereas demonic oppression involves external demonic attacks and persecution upon a person. These attacks could lead to bodily injury and, and you know, even anguish of mind, uh, even entice people into sinful behavior, but it does not involve the complete takeover of a person's um, control. And so uh, basically you could kind of look at it as uh, demonic possession is something that's internal, demonic activity on the inside. Uh, demonic oppression is something external, Uh, coming from the outside. I don't think there's actually enough information here to make the claim that this woman was only oppressed by demons and not possessed. All we can say for certain is that her condition was the result of some sort of demonic activity, whether it was oppression or possession. I don't think we can say with 100% certainty. What we do know is that this woman's physical condition was that she was bent over and in no way could raise herself up. She could not stand up straight. She's doubled over at the waist, bowed down, and we're told that she's been in this position for 18 years. You know, sometimes when we read the scriptures, we just read over stuff as it's like a matter of fact, and we don't really allow that to sink in. But I think we need to take uh, just a second here and think that through, okay, what it would be like for this woman. 18 years of being bowed over, doubled over at the waist, you know. Can you imagine what it would be like to live with that kind of condition for 18 years, to never be able to stand up straight? to not be able to do the normal things that you once took for granted, to constantly be looking down at the ground, uh, to be in this condition for 18 years, having lost probably any hope uh, by now of ever recovering. This woman was in, in a horrible state, okay? She was in a horrible condition, and yet we find that she is there in the synagogue seemingly ready to worship the Lord ready to hear his word, ready to receive from him whatever he would have for her. No doubt she had come several times before. No doubt she had prayed on numerous occasions to be healed of her afflictions, to be released from this bondage that she was under. And for 18 years, she's been bound in this way, but she continued to come to the Lord. She continued to look for him, to move, to work, to speak, to, to be in fellowship and communion with him. You know, I think most other people probably would have given up by then. They would have thrown in the towel and given up on God. You know, I think of the wife of Job and her counsel to her husband. If you're familiar with uh, that portion of Scripture, Job experienced his own set of painful afflictions. And it was Job's wife who told Job, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Okay, her mindset was to give up to throw in the towel, to curse God, have him finally deal that final blow and take his life. She had lost all hope that 
things would get better. And she said, you know, it's just, just go ahead, curse God and die. You know, just be done with it. But Job responded to his short-sighted wife, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? You see, Job was willing to receive both good and adversity. He was able to look at the situation he was in and trust that God was aware of what was going on. And he didn't lose hope in God's ability to work, even though this painful affliction uh, that he was experiencing. Okay? I think this woman gives us a good example to learn from. This woman came to the synagogue to meet with the Lord, to hear from him, to hope in him and his work in her life, despite the situation that she was in, despite the pain that she was feeling, despite the 18 long years she's been doubled over. She still came. She still sought the Lord. She still was looking unto the Lord. You know, when life deals us a heavy blow, when things seem to be crumbling around us, when life takes a drastic turn for the worse, how do we respond? Do we come to the Lord? Do we seek Him out? Do we look to Him and come to worship Him despite the circumstances that we're in? And how long are we willing to do so? How much time do we give the Lord to, to fix our situation before we're willing to say, you know what, God, you know, I'm giving up on you, okay? Do we persevere in hope? Do we not give up, even if that means years of waiting? Even if that means years of longing for some sort of change? This woman, she gives us a great example of what it means to persevere in hope. To hope in the Lord, even when all seems lost. James writes of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience, stating, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. James also writes of how we can grow through these trials and difficulties, encouraging us all to count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And he says, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect. The idea is there that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God is at work even in the trials. Listen, but if we don't wait around and allow him to do that work, if we give up, we throw in the towel on the Lord. Okay, if we decide to stop coming to church, to stop seeking the Lord, we will find that we will never grow into all that the Lord has for us. We will stunt our growth. We will minimize the work of God in our life, and we end up resisting the work of the Holy Spirit upon us because we have our own mindset of saying, well, God, you, I came and I prayed, and you didn't do anything about it, so I, I'm going to... I'm in rebellion. I'm not going to come to church anymore. And I'm not going to give you my worship anymore. How foolish and short-sighted to think such a thing. May we persevere in hope, knowing that God is at work, even in the trials, even in the pain and in the suffering. God is molding and shaping us and he is preparing us for something far greater. Now, while this woman's presence at the synagogue after 18 years of bondage may have shocked some people that she continued to persevere. I don't think very many were prepared for what would happen next. Let's read verses 12 and 13. It says, But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loose from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. You know, I, I love it when it says Jesus saw her. 
I, I don't want to make this a bigger deal than what it was, but I do think the fact that Jesus saw her, that it is something that was significant. You see, so many times in life when we see people in certain conditions, okay, we don't really see the person as much as we see the condition, right? You know, if we see someone who's, you know, maybe crippled or, or handicapped, you know, we see the blindness, we see the wheelchair, we see perhaps the scars, we see the disability, we see the disease, okay, the impairments, maybe even other people, okay, we might see people and the way they live their life, we see the sin, but oftentimes we fail to see the person beyond the condition, right? You know, imagine for this woman, many people in that area stopped seeing the woman long ago, and they only associated with her, her with the condition. But Jesus saw her. He saw this woman. He, he saw beyond the condition she was in. He saw her faith. He saw how he could help her and minister to her and free her from this condition that has defined her for the last 18 years. I often feel like, I often pray, you know, God help us to see how Jesus sees. You know, give us your eyes that we may see the conditions or see not the conditions and the positions of people, but to see people for who they truly are. You know, that God would give us eyes to see as he sees, to to see how we may be able to minister to people, to help people, to, to bring them closer to Jesus. You see, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That is what the Lord reminded Samuel of when Samuel went to anoint God's chosen king, David. Samuel saw the eldest son of Jesse, Eliab. He was, uh, you know, big, strong, and handsome. And uh, Samuel thought, surely this is the one. Surely the Lord's anointed was before him, but it wasn't him. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And one by one, the sons of Jesse passed before Samuel, but the Lord had not chosen any of them. And when Samuel asked Jesse if all of his sons were present, Jesus, or Jesus, Jesse responded, well, there remains yet the youngest, and, and there he is, he's keeping the sheep, Right? David, he, he was just the youngest of Jesse's son, the shepherd that everyone overlooked. I mean, he didn't even bother to call him forward. Hey, you know, the prophet's coming to town. He says to bring all your sons forward. All right, I got them all here. Was this all of them? Oh, there's still one more, he's, but he's out there. He's just, he's just the shepherd out there, right? He's the youngest. You see... Man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart. God saw the heart of David. God saw that David had a heart after his own heart, that David would do all of God's will, according to Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Yes, David would blow it. Yes, he would sin. He would fall horribly short, but he continued to get back up. He continued to pursue God. He had a repentant heart, and he had a heart for God, and he had a heart for God's word. God saw all of that in him, while everyone else just saw the young shepherd boy that wasn't worth calling forward in the first place. You see, God looks at us and he sees us for who we really are. He looks beyond what is on the outside and he sees to the heart. It's been said that God sees us as we are. He loves us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us where we are. I like that. God God sees us where we are. He, He loves us as we are. 
but by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. May we have eyes to see beyond the outward appearances of others and be able to see people as the Lord sees them. Well, not only did Jesus see this woman, he also called this woman, okay? Jesus saw her and then he called her to himself. And I love this as well. Jesus called this woman to himself first and foremost. Whatever our calling in life, our first and our primary calling is always to Jesus, Jesus may call some of us to be Marines or sailors, okay, or moms or dads or a husband or a wife or a sister or a brother or a leader or a follower of some kind. He may call us to be teachers or contractors or lay leaders in the church. God calls to all, God calls us to all sorts of different positions, different seasons, different jobs, different places, different titles, but our first and primary call is to himself. God sees us and he calls us to himself because he is our greatest need. He is the one that gives us our right standing before the Lord. He is the one that equips us and prepares us for all the other callings and positions that we will have. And I'm sure that this woman went to see all sorts of other people in hopes of finding a remedy for her condition. I'm sure she sought after doctors and healers and anyone else that she may have thought could have helped her. But what this woman needed is to enter into personal relationship with Jesus. She needed to come to Jesus and the same is true of us all. Jesus is the answer to all of our needs. Okay, Jesus is the answer to our broken relationship with God. Our sin has separated us from God, but Jesus is the way back to him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the answer to our guilty conscience. Even after we come to faith in Jesus, we still struggle with sin. And it is Jesus who washes us and cleanses us when we confess our sin to him. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he, referring to Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Jesus is the answer to our broken relationships with each other. Okay? Jesus calls us to love one another, knowing that love covers a multitude of sins and that love keeps no record of wrong. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By loving as Jesus loved, we are able to restore the broken relationships that we have with one another. Jesus is the answer to the meaning and purpose of life. Nothing in this world will ever be able to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Only Jesus can bring that sort of satisfaction and give us purpose and meaning in this life. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus states, I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. You see, Jesus is the way to the abundant life. In John chapter 15, Jesus states, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. He sang a song today about how I am nothing without you. It is 100% true, you guys. Jesus is the answer to the problems of this world. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome 
the world. John writes, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus is the answer. He is the one we need and he calls us to himself. I want you to note with me as well that Jesus not only saw her and he called her, but he also touched her. He called this woman to himself, told her, woman, you are loose from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. The Greek word translated straight, it's only used three times in the New Testament scriptures. Here it's translated as made straight. In Acts, it's translated as set up. And in Hebrews, it's translated as strengthen. But the idea behind this word is that it speaks of restoration. It speaks of something that is rebuilt or restored or to be built anew. Something that was perhaps old and broken down. Something that was deformed and it being restored, reshaped to its fullest potential. Jesus touched this woman and restored her life. He gave her new life through one simple touch. And after Jesus touched her, she immediately was restored. Immediately she was made anew, straightened up. What an amazing sight to behold there on that Sabbath day, a day not many would soon forget, a day that I'm sure shocked and amazed many people to see this woman made whole, made anew, made free from the spirit of infirmity that had been with her for the last 18 years. How amazing it would have been for the people to see Jesus touch this woman's life in such a powerful way. Listen, you guys, Jesus is still at work today, touching our lives, making us new, rebuilding and restoring and reshaping us. He sees us. He calls us to himself and he touches our lives, making us anew. He isn't afraid to touch us, though we may be dirty or unclean or sinful. Jesus' touch is powerful enough to overcome all of those things, all of the stains from our lives lived in the world. You know, so many times we read of Jesus laying his hands on people with a compassionate touch, even upon people who were considered unclean or impure. He would lay his hands upon the lepers, okay, uh, who were not allowed to touch other people. But Jesus would reach his hand out and he would touch them. He didn't mind reaching out his hand to any who responded to his call to come to him. You know, I've talked to people before. Maybe you have too. Sometimes people think that they are too dirty that they have done too many evil things, too many hurtful things, that they just have too much sin in their life. They think they're too far gone, that there is no hope for them. And they can't fathom the idea that they could be forgiven, that they could receive God's grace and His forgiveness, that they could experience that sort of touch from the Lord. But Jesus has shown throughout the Scriptures that He wasn't afraid to reach out and touch anyone who responded to Him. Jesus never turned away anyone that came to him in genuine faith. You will never read one time in the scripture where Jesus said to someone who came to him with a genuine and sincere heart, I'm sorry, I'm just too dirty. Okay? I'm sorry, your, your sin account is just too full. You're beyond my help. I'm sorry. You will never read that in the scriptures. Okay? Jesus' compassion and grace are further reaching than any of us could ever imagine. None of us are beyond the grace of God. None of us are beyond the reach of Jesus where he can't reach out and touch our lives for his glory. And we fail to understand the magnitude of Jesus' gracious touch upon our lives. We think that we have to earn it. 
We think that we have to be good enough to, to deserve it, but that simply isn't so. His touch is a touch of grace, something that cannot be earned, something that cannot be deserved. It is unmerited divine favor. If we will surrender our lives to him and answer the call to himself, he will touch our lives and make us anew. The scriptures teach us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This woman experienced that amazing touch of God's grace upon her life, and she was made straight again, made anew to the glory of God. This woman's response was that she glorified God. She rendered all praise, honor, and glory to the Lord. She knew that what had happened to her was all because of God. What other possible response can there be? When God sees us, when he calls us to himself, and then he touches our lives. When God does all of the work, when he sees us in our depravity, in our pain, in our hopelessness, and he calls out to us to come to him, to find the answer to our problems through him, and then he touches our lives, making us new, the only appropriate response is to praise, honor, and glorify him. You know, you guys... We gather each Sunday morning and Wednesday evening, and we start off each service with praise and worship songs. There is a very important reason we do so. Okay? We do so because it is the appropriate response to all that God has done for us. Listen, it isn't just something we do to entertain you guys. Okay? Oh, look, Matt's a really good guitar player. Doesn't he sound really great? Yeah, he do. Thank you, Matt for using your gifts and talents. But it ain't about you, right? Amen? Amen. All right. It's not about entertaining us. Okay? We, we don't do it at the first to give you guys enough time in case you're late so that you don't miss the teaching, right? Oh, okay, well, we're just going to miss the first couple songs. No big deal. No, no. You guys, praise and worship is the only appropriate response we should have to all the work that God has done in our hearts and in our lives. And you know what? I'm going to be real with you guys for a second. Okay? I try to focus on the Lord when I'm worshiping and praising, but sometimes I, I, I see people that are just disengaged and they're not singing, they're not worshiping, and I just think, man, how sad that they have nothing to praise God for. They're here in this place and, and they don't have anything to, to sing to Him and say, man, you're so good, you're so awesome. God, you're worthy of this. And you're just kind of here. It's like, oh man. Praise and worship is the appropriate response to the work that God has done in our lives, okay? It's meant to be an active response to the Lord. It's us reminding ourselves of what he's done for us. It's us praising him for the continued work that he does. Praising and worshiping God, glorifying him is the appropriate response to all that God has done, is doing, and will ever do in our lives. And so we see this woman have the appropriate response here and a good example for us to follow in. Let's continue in our text. While the healing of this woman received, this woman received was amazing, there was one particular person who didn't care for what was going on. Let's read verse 14. It says, But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. 
Jesus had performed a great miracle in loosening this woman from her spiritual infirmity. She had been set free from years of bondage and suffering. She was praising God. You know, what better way could there be to spend a Sabbath? Just praising God for his awesome display of his power and his t- healing touch, right? I mean, wouldn't that have been amazing to be part of that worship service? Be like, man, God showed up and did this really amazing thing. You missed out. You didn't come to church, you know? Uh, Jesus showed up and did something awesome. You would think everyone would be elated, overjoyed, just blown away by God, and all that would, and, and all would join together with this woman in praising and glorifying Him. But that wasn't the case. The ruler of the synagogue was filled with indignation upon seeing Jesus heal this woman, all because Jesus had done so on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest, a day of setting the work of the week aside and resting in the Lord. People would attend synagogue services to devote themselves to seeking after the Lord and growing in their relationship with the Lord on the Sabbath. But the religious leaders had turned the Sabbath, a day of rest, into a day of rules and rituals and and regulations. It made it nearly impossible to enjoy true rest. For these rules and regulations, they became a great burden upon the people. The ruler of the synagogue rebuked the people, telling them, there are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. He he viewed healing as work, and and that was to be forbidden on the Sabbath. You know, doctors uh, bring healing to people, and that's their job, that's their work, therefore that's work. You can't heal people on the Sabbath. I do find it interesting that Jesus was the one that supposedly broke the Sabbath by doing work on it. But the synagogue leader directed his rebuke towards the people. You guys see that? You note that? We, we see in his response that he was really just a big bully. Okay? He didn't have the courage to say anything to Jesus. He had no authority over him. He was no doubt intimidated by Jesus. So he looked to those whom he could have power over and those he could try to intimidate and began to rebuke them. This guy was a coward. He was a bully, a religious leader that was more concerned with lording over people than loving people. Someone more concerned with keeping people bound to the law than seeing people freed from sin and demonic influences. Warren Wiersbe, um, he writes in his commentary, he's one of my favorite Bible commentators. He writes of this man, he says that the bondage of the ruler of the synagogue was worse than that of the woman. Her bondage affected her, only her body, but his bondage shackled his mind and his heart. He was so bound and blinded by tradition that he ended up opposing the Son of God. Now the religious leader, okay, this ruler of the synagogue, he was bound up in legalism and tradition and it blinded him to the genuine work of God. You see, earlier, you guys, if you may recall, in chapter 11 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had pronounced woes upon some of the spiritual leaders of the day. He spoke of how they had taken away the key of knowledge. He accused them of not entering in themselves and not only that, but hindering those who desired to enter in. The religious leaders were meant to lead people into spiritual matters, to lead them to the Lord, but they didn't have any interest and desire for the things of the Lord. And instead of leading people to the Lord, they only hindered them from coming to him. The religious leaders were more concerned with people keeping their own traditions than they were with seeing people touched by the Lord. What a very sad situation. 
One would think that a ruler of a synagogue would be excited about God showing up and doing something amazing during their Sabbath service, but such was not the case. This religious leader was more bound and in a worse condition than that woman was who had suffered from spiritual infirmity for 18 years. And as we look at this, I think that it is a warning for us, you guys, that we don't allow ourselves to get caught up in legalism and in our own traditions, that we end up turning people away from the Lord rather than drawing them to the Lord. You know, sometimes we can come across as very harsh and unloving. We can come across as judgmental and unforgiving when we see people doing things that we may not agree with. Listen, we need to be more like Christ, to see people as they are, to understand their need for God's touch, and to look for opportunities to be conduits of His love and His grace. As we have received the love and grace of God, may we be faithful to share that love and grace with others. Too many times we see other people that don't maybe agree with us, that live their lives in a different way, and we speak harshly towards them. We think hard, you know, very opinionated about them. And we fail to realize their need for the Lord. We fail to realize their need for God's grace and God's love. Now that doesn't mean we just tell people it's okay to sin or that God doesn't care about sin, okay? Because that isn't loving. That isn't sharing the truth, okay? Lying to someone and telling them it's okay what you're doing is God's okay with that. That's not loving, okay? But we need to learn how to share the truth in love with the hopes of seeing someone respond to God's call upon their lives, with the hope of seeing people touched by the Lord. We have to be careful, you guys, okay? And how we put ourselves out there. There's a lot of people in this world that don't think the same as Christians do, okay? There's a lot of people, Christians, who don't think like other Christians think, okay? We can get so caught up in our rules, our traditions, our own interpretations and stuff like that, that we are harsh towards people that need the love of God. We need God's love and grace, and we need to extend God's love and grace. Let's read of how Jesus responded to this religious leader in verses 15 through 17. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus rightly identified this man as a hypocrite. He was a a phony, a, a pretender, Jesus called out this man for his hypocrisy and that they would have exceptions to the Sabbath rituals and rules in order to take care of their oxen and and their donkeys. All Jesus did was loose this woman from her infirmity. But loosening a bond or unfastening some sort of restraint was technically considered work. And so it was forbidden on the Sabbath. But yet, All the Jews made exceptions to the rules when it came to taking care of their animals and making sure that they were properly watered. Yeah, it's okay to loose your oxen that you have tied up and bring them over to the water, even if it's the Sabbath. That's okay. Okay? Um, Later on in Luke's Gospel, Jesus will also speak to another group of religious leaders and note how each of them would immediately pull his donkey or ox out of a pit if it were to fall into one on the Sabbath day. This too would be considered work, but yet... 
they made allowances for it. And so, you know, here they are. Don't, you can't do work on the Sabbath, okay? You can't heal this woman on the Sabbath. Oh, but it's okay to loose your donkey and go give him some water. It's okay for you to, you know, pull out your donkey if it falls in a, in a you know, pit of some kind. You could do that. that. That's allowed. But don't heal. Hypocrisy. Okay? It was hypocritical of the ruler of the synagogue to say it was okay to loosen an ox or donkey on the Sabbath, but it wasn't okay to loosen a woman who had been spiritually bound by Satan. And we can hear the appeal to this man's heart in Jesus' response to him. He says, So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath. In his response, he gives a number of reasons why this woman should have been healed on the Sabbath, why this was the best time for this woman to be delivered. This woman was a daughter of Abraham. She was a fellow Jew, a member of the family, part of God's chosen people. She had been bound by Satan. Satan is the adversary of the Lord and his people. Why wouldn't this ruler of the synagogue want to deal a decisive blow to the enemy? She had been in this condition for 18 years. He tells the ruler of the synagogue, think of it, okay? Pause for a second. Let that sink in. 18 years she's been this way. Why make her wait another day? And the fact that it was a Sabbath, that should bring even greater significance. The Sabbath was a day of rest. What better day to be healed and restored and to enter into the rest from that spiritual infirmity than on God's day of rest. See, in rebuking this ruler of the synagogue, Jesus is teaching us the importance of seeing people's needs as being far more important than our rules and our regulations. You guys, ministry, Christianity, is about people. It's about relationships. Okay, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it's about reaching people where they are and bringing them to Jesus. Relationships are far more important than our rules and our regulations. We need to be able to reach out to the people who are hurting, people who are lost, people who need the Lord. We don't need to bash them. We don't need to blast them. We need to lovingly come alongside them with the truth, with the gospel. We need to help them see their need for Jesus. We need to be willing to look beyond our rules and our regulations and see the hurting hearts of people in need of the Lord. Well, after Jesus had said these things, all his adversaries, evidently the synagogue ruler wasn't the only one who was in opposition to Jesus that day. There were others who were, yeah, why are you healing on the Sabbath, Jesus? I'm sad to say. They were put to shame, we're told. They realized, hopefully, the error of their way. That is what shame is. It's a a negative emotion one feels that's caused by an awareness of wrongdoing, a a hurt ego or guilt. They had been publicly exposed and the error of their ways was brought to light. Now, we aren't told what happened after that, but we hope, we pray that they repented, that they found the same grace extended to them as was extended to this woman. We hope they had godly sorrow that led to repentance rather than worldly sorrow that only leads to death, as we mentioned last week. Also, we are told that the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him, by Jesus. The fact that Jesus saw this woman, he called her to himself, 
And he touched her life, straightening out her life. And then he rebuked the ruler of the synagogue in a way, set him straight, showing him how people were more important than rules and regulations, caused the multitudes to rejoice in the Lord and all that he had done. Again, what a fitting response, the appropriate response to God's work of straightening out matters involving this woman and the ruler of the synagogue.